0: It's the Do Politics Better podcast. I'm Brian Lewis.
1: And I'm Sky David. It is Thanksgiving week. We are heading into the holidays.
0: One of the best weeks out of the year. I love Thanksgiving week. Why? For one. Thursday and Friday you're off, so that's great, but things tend to be quiet. We've been taking some calls from clients, answering some questions, but for the most part, it's really been a quiet week, Mm. and I just, I think it's kind of one of those low-key weeks of the year.
1: That's probably true. I've seen a bunch of stuff saying like, you know, between Thanksgiving and Christmas, people really don't do anything at all.
0: You think that's true, though? I feel like for us in the political world, not only are we going to wind down the legislative session in December, but then we have candidate filings, and you know what happens after candidate filings? A lot of fundraisers.
1: Yeah, the worst part about this work. Yeah. When Probably I've, for legislators and for us.
0: We're all miserable, right?
1: Yeah, like making small talk all day long, like we already do that together.
0: You get your clients, send a pack check, you go and you eat some food that you could buy for less than $3 if you got it <laughs> at the grocery store. You drink some cheap wine, you make small talk, no one wants to be there, and then you leave. And you go get a regular meal somewhere at a restaurant. Yeah. Yeah. So that's kind of December. Go into January. It sounds like, with the schedule that we're hearing, they wind down the legislative session, as we said, in early to mid December. But I heard they are already thinking about coming back in January. They want to be able to respond to any decisions that come down from the courts about some of the outstanding lawsuits that are out there. There's the Leandro lawsuit, which is been around for decades. And then there's the redistricting. Multiple redistricting lawsuits. And then Governor Cooper announced at his announcement that he's going to sign the budget that he may be bringing some lawsuits around executive power. You'll recall back a
1: few years ago when the governor called them into a special session and they came into session and rejected the governor's special session. Do you remember that?
0: I do remember that. They just gaveled in and gaveled out, essentially. Mm -hmm. So let's just say there is a court ruling and it has to do with the executive powers. If they adjourned until the spring, which is when they are scheduled to come back for the short session, they want to call themselves back into special session. They need super majorities to do that. So they would be dependent upon Democrats to give them three or four votes in the House, two votes in the Senate. Then they could call themselves. So it's just easier, right? It's just if
1: my recollection serves me correctly, they have to have actual signatures for that. And there has to be a special messenger who drives around the state and gets those signatures.
0: All right. So we're just going to stay in session as we are dealing with court cases. They may adjourn eventually into the spring, but right now we can count on coming back every three or four weeks.
1: Interestingly enough, this kind of goes hand in hand with the Evergreen Law Mm -hmm. that... We would just be running on the last year's budget if we didn't have a budget. And since about the same time as that law went into place, we now have an evergreen general assembly. Just every three weeks, someone told us today that that's been happening since about 2016. So you're looking at about five years of precedent for that three-week period.
0: So once again, we're becoming a full-time legislature, which I believe... We really are, for all intents and purposes, we are full-time. At some point, we are going to have this collision between legislators who are running their small businesses or they've got jobs back in the district, or you're Jeffrey Elmore, Representative Elmore, who is a school teacher. At some point, we're going to have to reconcile this, right? If we're going to stay in session year-round... We really need to start looking at full-time salaries with, with staffing and the full staffing that comes with that. Sounds like
1: you could lobby for this for free, maybe.
0: I'll lobby for it for free.
1: So after all the excitement of last week, the budget passing, kumbaya moments between everyone, the governor, as we said, signed the budget on Thursday afternoon. And one of the things that We get questions about from our clients is okay, the budget is signed. Where's my money?
0: Yeah, we've been talking about this with our clients. There is a process in place, checks are not cut the moment the governor signs the budget. Can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, so if you go to the Office of State Budget Management site, they talk about the process between the ratified budget to the certified budget so right now we have a ratified budget but we do not have a certified budget yet and that can sound confusing and it just means that that office goes and checks with all the agencies they monitor what was put into the budget with actual costs and they also look at revenue collections other expenditures and make any sort of small adjustments that need to be made and at that point they check in with all the agencies then the budget is
0: certified once it's certified it goes into a computer program that sets up the accounts. So if you are an organization that is getting money, say, through the Department of Public Instruction, it goes through DPI. DPI then disperses the money to the nonprofit, but maybe you get a direct appropriation. We've heard COVID money, COVID relief money, that's kind of that first priority of money that's going to go out. Of course. Education money is a first priority because we have got to fund our schools and we're almost four or five months behind on that. So they got to check up on that. And
1: as a reminder, this budget, it goes back to July 1. So there are all of these back payments that are going to come.
0: And then the agencies out there that are doing work in partnership with the state, various nonprofits they get their money. So we're talking anywhere between 30 and 60 days typically is what I hear from agency heads and inside the department.
1: Last week, we talked some about just the flurry of folks filing for higher office. And this week, we we missed a few people last week, it was hard to be comprehensive. This week, there's just another list of folks either considering running for higher office or who have officially announced. I think that Senator Ballard said that she was going to make an announcement on Monday Mm -hmm. Um, after Thanksgiving. She's going to spend this week with her family and make that decision. There were some folks in that western part of the state that said they weren't running.
0: Kevin Corbin, he said he was not going to run. We heard a rumor around the building, have not confirmed this with Senator Heiss, but We were told that if Senator Ballard, if she got in the North Carolina Senate race, which she's double bunked with Ralph Heiss, then Senator Ralph Heiss was going to step aside and not run against her. But again, that is unconfirmed. We also missed last week that Representative Bobby Hannig up in Currituck County has decided that he is going to run for the North Carolina Senate seat that I think is currently occupied by Senator Ernestine Bazemore, a Democrat from Bertie County. That's right. Then James Galliard, Representative James Galliard, has already thrown his hat in the ring for that congressional seat being vacated by Congressman G.K. Butterfield. And from the social media blitz we've seen from Senator Don Davis, he is definitely getting in that race. And of course, Erica Smith, she filed paperwork this week indicating that she is running. So that is already looking like a very crowded Democratic primary. It is a toss-up seat by most political observers, especially in 2022. I think it's six points Democrat, but we all know that 2022 is going to be a tough year for that party.
1: As we get closer and closer to the candidate filing deadline, which is coming up, I think we'll see more of these. We'll keep you updated on any
0: notable folks. So this week, being a holiday week, we decided that we would do something special with our guest on the podcast. He is not a politician. He is not a legislator. He has written a book. His name is Stephen Kent. We know Stephen, he's been to the office a few times, used to live in Raleigh. He's written a book, How the Force Can Fix the World. I sat down with him last week to talk about his book, to talk about politics, and to talk about how we can do politics better using the force. So Stephen Kent, welcome to the Do Politics Better podcast. Thank you for being our guest today.
2: It is a real pleasure. Doing politics better is important to me, so this is awesome. Well, congratulations
0: on your new book, How the Force Can Fix the World. It came out Tuesday, November 9th. Is sure it? did.
2: Sure did. Opening week here. New book. First book. You know, it's exciting times. <laughs> well, I rushed down to
0: Quail Ridge Books and bought a copy. I am enjoying it so much.
2: I've gotten good reactions so far. The Amazon reviews are looking good. And I think one person has already reached out and said they've just done a second read, which on the one hand, I'm like, I am glad this book is that readable. On the other hand, two times in three days, maybe I should have made it longer. (laughs) (laughs) So you use Star Wars stories,
0: subplots to make a case of how we can
2: fix our politics. Mm
0: How'd you come about writing this book, How the Force Can Fix the World?
2: Well, I think the, the, the answer is that I started a podcast in 2016 called the Beltway Banthas podcast. It was this goofy idea that there should be a Star Wars in politics podcast because there's a lot of talking about Star Wars in politics shows mm-hmm. and a lot of talking about uh, politics, a um, uh, Star Wars in politics show. So I wanted to do one that was just a merger of both of those things. And this podcast took me on a really interesting journey of speaking to people who see the world in very different ways, Team Red or Team Blue, Democrat or Republican or Libertarian or Socialist. And they're all Star Wars fans. And why is that? And I wanted to explore how we share common morality and we just often use different words to describe shared feelings or shared virtues. I think of Star Wars as a really great cultural medium where we can have tough conversations about light and dark and good and evil right and wrong, uh, but do it in a way that is less polarizing and threatening. And Star Wars is a great way to do that. So this book was born out of that, the desire to have conversations about what we share, but doing it in a way that you can approach it a little bit better. And The Galaxy Far, Far Away is a good way to do it.
0: So I'd never heard a take on Star Wars the way you have taken it in this book. I have heard kind of the partisanship of Star Wars in the past. When I talk to Republicans, you know, they believe that they are the rebels and that the empire are socialist Democrats and they all want us to be the same. If I talk to my liberal friends, they think they're the rebels trying to take on the empire. You've heard this too, Of
2: course. It's, It's a little bit tried and exhausting. And then there's also the conservative sort of ironic (laughs) apologetic argument for the empire. This was popularized by Bill Kristol's Weekly Standard. There was an article written... Uh, 10 years ago at this point, uh, arguing for why the empire was actually good. And there's been this weird thing in conservative politics where a lot of people have read that article and sort of made the the cheeky case for why that is actually correct. But at the end of the day, what that argument misses, both the ironic pro-empire argument and the we are always the rebels and you're clearly the empire that misses the point of Star Wars almost entirely, which is a story of self-reflection and realizing that your good intentions can lead you towards becoming the Empire. It's a story of sons not wanting to become their fathers. Mm -hmm. It is a story of Jedi trying to do what is right, but what appears to be right one day ends up to be wrong, and they end up being Darth Vader or Sith Dark Lords. It's the story of how a Republic, in an effort to try to bring order, freedom, and security to the galaxy, become a dictatorial empire. So what you're seeing there when people Ascribe the mantle of rebel to themselves is pretty predictable. It's it's (laughs) self-righteousness and skepticism of their opponents and an unwillingness to look at the ways in which their good intentions could also go awry.
0: I grew up in a very evangelical home And my mother would not let me watch Star Wars because of all of the religion and Eastern
2: religion and the, you know, kind of the force. My middle school tried to ban Harry Potter. Yeah, Yeah, they sent us all home with books uh, warning us of the evils of Harry Potter.
0: Well, what happens when you try to ban something or you try to keep a kid saying you can't can't watch this. Well, I snuck into theaters through my childhood from 1977 all the way through 1983. I was watching, you know, the Star Wars Empire Strikes Back, Return of the Jedi on the sly.
2: Nothing has bolstered my faith in God more than Star Wars. You know, it's it's one of those things that people, again, they have their good intentions, but like, when you are raised in a religious household, you're told certain things, mm. but you have to discover them for yourself at some point. At some point, you have to go out there and see God in the world for you to really know. You know, the idea that Luke Skywalker goes down the trench of the Death Star and he turns off his targeting computer, right? Mm. And he goes and shoots that impossible shot blind because Obi-Wan says, you know, let go, reach out, use the force. Let go,
0: Look, the Force is strong in its
2: Luke, trust me. It's the exact same thing. It was an impossible shot that they said no pilot in the galaxy could make. And he had to actually just go blind and say, you know what? The Force might will this shot to hit this port mm-hmm. and blow up the Death Star and I'm going to let it happen. Hearing stories like that have helped me understand better better mm-hmm. the religion that i was raised in mm-hmm. uh, and the beliefs that i have about the world but uh, that's a, that's an interesting story uh, <laughs> you, you try to blacklist something you know it just makes it more appealing i can tell by reading the
0: book because you also quote scriptures in the book and you yeah. make some parallels between star wars and uh, religion which by the way i wish i had this book 30 years ago so i could make <laughs> the case to my mother but can you talk about this idea that we have fear and that fear is kind of the genesis of our polarization and how mm-hmm. it plays into that. And you you talk in the book, this exchange. I think it's forgive me if I'm wrong here, but I think it's Yoda talking about fear yeah. to to one of the Jedi's, as they're describing Anakin Skywalker.
2: Yes. So in Star Wars Episode One, The Phantom Menace, Anakin Skywalker is a, a young boy. He's nine years old, and he's discovered by the Jedi and brought to the Temple on Coruscant to train as a Jedi. Many years after they would normally induct someone into the order. So the Jedi have this rule about not bringing people into the order who are too old. They only bring in toddlers and infants and raise them as Jedi. The reason for that is because the older you get, the more attached you become to certain things. The entire Jedi philosophy is based around serenity, detachment, logic, and reason. What are the things that cloud our logic and reason? You're a parent. Our children love of our children can blind us (laughs) to, to reason and logic. And one of the the areas, and this is the case of anyone you love, you know, you you love people and you're willing to do sometimes crazy things to to protect those people. And that's just human nature. And the Jedi were were very protective of trying to make sure that that didn't happen. And they noticed that Anakin was nervous in this Mm -hmm. meeting. And they said, you know, you're dwelling on your mother, who he'd been, you know, living with for nine years. And he said, Yeah, I miss her. Afraid of losing her, are you? Mm. He says, Yeah. What does that have to do with anything? And they say, Everything. Fear is the path to the dark side. Fear leads to anger. Anger leads to hate. Hate leads to suffering. And it is not just a Star Wars piece of advice. Think about. Maybe just like it's it's easier to think about the other side in politics. Think mm-hmm. about the way some of your political opponents' worldviews work. They're afraid of a certain thing, and eventually they become so afraid of it, they're angry about it. They're, they're frightened, and they're angry. And then when nothing happens and they're not able to overcome that fear, eventually they start hating on something or someone. And then what happens after hate is anybody's guess. In the Jedi mindset, it's suffering, either of the individual or of the collective. Um, when I think about the ways in which we have sort of let fear run our lives in this country and i i tried to take COVID out of the equation because it's a little bit too raw and emotional Mm -hmm. for a lot of people right now so i I talked instead about the war on terror and also helicopter parenting Mm -hmm. and i just really look at the war on terror with great contempt 20 years down the road this idea that we're attacked then we're going to wage a war on the idea that we could ever be afraid or have uncertainties in life and we're going to somehow be better. You know, We've let that fear completely run our lives and we haven't moved on from it. And we just saw, I think, the, the seeds sown of all of that in the Afghanistan withdrawal just a couple of months ago with immense human suffering for reasons which I don't think most Americans can even explain why we were there in the first place. Right.
0: You talk in the book a lot about humility and empathy. You talk about walking in someone else's shoes. You bring up many different analogies with this. Can you talk about how empathy can change our politics?
2: Well, empathy is rooted in trying to understand where another person is coming from and see in some ways your own uh, self in others. You know, shared humanity is a huge part of it. One of the things that I, I begin with in Star Wars is just the idea that your, your primary villains in most cases, and, and this is the case with some of the heroes in Star Wars as well, but they are literally wearing masks. You have Darth Vader masked to his opponents. He's considered more machine now than man in the words of Obi-Wan. And Luke Skywalker is being encouraged by both Yoda and Obi-Wan in those original Star Wars movies to not see him as as a man. He cannot be redeemed. Also, your father is dead. Don't even try to save this guy. Uh, Luke refuses. Luke only ends up seeing that it is his father. There is a man in that armor, and he's never been given a true way out of the situation that he put himself in. Kylo Ren is sort of the same in the first movie for the new trilogy, The The Force Awakens. Rey calls Kylo a creature in a mask. Mm-hmm. And Kylo, in response to this, he steps back, pulls his mask off and slams it down on the table. And she's just completely shocked mm-hmm. because not only is this a human underneath this mask and not a cyborg, he's a cute boy mm-hmm. <laughs> about her age, right. looks nice, uh, and and she is just taken aback by the idea that this is a person and why would he put himself in this kind of situation? What's his story? And in politics, I always wanna know, what are these people's stories? Mm -hmm. Why is the person who works in the labor union or why is the person who works in social justice activism In this? What was their animating moment? I had on this leftist to my podcast a couple of of weeks ago, and we were talking about the homelessness and drug addiction issue. And I was kind of sounding off on my personal opinions about how we need to deal with homelessness in cities and deal with mental illness. And, you know, my guest kind of wrecked me when he told me about his mom's lifelong heroin addiction. Mm. And and he, he hit back at me with my sort of over eagerness to criminalize certain kinds of, of failings and, and moral failings and, and, and shortcomings. Um, you know, he's a guy who whose mom had dealt with drug addiction her entire life. He had dropped his father off twice to go to prison for different sentences. He's lived a really hard life and he's channeled that into social justice work and it means everything to him. And I had to pause and just sort of reflect on why it is I was so sure that my way was the right way, and you can't know how to reach people till you know what motivated them to be at the table in the first place.
0: At the end of every chapter, you have some tips on how to fix the world, fix our politics, And they relate back of course to that chapter whether it's about fear or humility or bended knee was it something where you had this idea of how we should be improving our discourse and then you wrote a book or did you write the book and then those tips came
2: I think the tips came after the fact I I definitely didn't go into this feeling like I, I knew a great deal about how people should live better lives I had to research you know I had to read studies on why empathy is in decline I had to try to dig into scholarly work on why people indulge irrational fear and and aren't able to really think in like risk calculation formats we have very binary ways of thinking about fear either something is safe or it's risky but we're very bad at hedging on you know percentages on that kind of stuff so I had to dig into it and then only after reading a lot, watching Star Wars with a very, very critical eye. Did I ever get any anything to the semblance of advice for people to implement it? I've had to do a great deal of reading myself on particularly Greek Stoicism, which mm-hmm. is one of the areas in which George Lucas absolutely drew from for, for informing the Jedi philosophy. The Greek Stoic primary view is that you have to relinquish control of things in your life Um, that are truly outside of, out of your command. And that is basically the way that the Jedi live. And I've had to try to factor that into my worldview as well. I talked about that a little bit as a Christian as well. Mm -hmm. You know, the certain things that you need to step away from and say, you know what, this is not actually in my domain. I'm going to let someone else handle it. Um, With the book, I would say, hmm... I, I wanted to focus on self-improvement overall because the idea that the force can fix the world is awfully heady. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's definitely out there to say Star Wars can make the world a better place. And I, I think I deal with it pretty strongly in the epilogue, which is everything comes back to the individual. Mm-hmm. If we don't start improving ourselves instead of focusing on the failings of our neighbors, of people who we don't know on the internet, and shouting at other people about how awful they are on social media, instead of doing the hard work of improving ourselves, we will never have a better world. So the the book kind of takes issue by issue the things that are broken, and then always tries to turn it back towards, now what are you doing Mm -hmm. to do this a little bit better? Doing politics better is about the individual. Yeah. And if we all do it together, then as a collective, we'll make the world a better place.
0: One tip that I love, it's in the first couple chapters, and it's
2: something I
0: have been implementing for two or three years, and that is meeting in person and having a conversation with someone you disagree with as opposed to just fighting it Brian, out. Brian, I, right? <laughs> I have to do that
2: with my own uncle. Right? I have to do that with my own uncle because we, we'll, we'll fight on Facebook and it's like, this isn't really us and mm. I will call him. I'll call him and be like, "Hey, how are you?" Right. And and that immediately eliminates that tension cuz you do like this performance online sometimes when you're talking to people and you got to get in at a table and sit down or just give someone a call.
0: You ask this in the book, "Have you ever had someone say, "Yeah, I got my mind changed on social media?" Never happened.
2: No. And <laughs> and, and and one of the things that I thought was I wanted to be like humble and open about there is, You know how people debate on Facebook. They go and, like, they find an article and then they throw it in the comments section. You know, you're going back and forth and then they're like, you know, check out this Washington Post piece. (laughs) And it's like, you, how did you have time to read this in the time we've been (laughs) discussing? And do you really expect me to read this? People just do it as a way to try to shut down the argument. And it's even more apparent when they throw a white paper at you. They link you to, like, a Harvard University study and you're like, oh, come on. (laughs) (laughs) You don't. You don't know what's in this. (laughs) That's right. That's right. But you know, it's interesting. You go to a
0: bar and have a beer with someone. Inevitably, in that conversation, you will hear these words. I see your point. I see your point. You might not agree with them. Might not, you know, you still might be polar opposite. But there is just some civility in talking with someone
2: one-on-one. We long to be in community with other people. We do not long to be in conflict. Conflict is in our nature but it's not something that we actively desire as people. Let's talk a little bit about you
0: and who you are. You are from North Carolina. You have ties into North Carolina politics, and you're very upfront in your book about your political philosophy, which I find so very interesting. Can you tell our listeners
2: who you are? Oh my gosh, that's, that's the impossible question. No, that's- uh, North, North Carolina native. I was, I was born and raised between Raleigh and Greensboro most of my life. My dad is sort of a, a polished uh, and, and well, well worked uh, lobbyist here in Raleigh. He works in the beer and wine biz. Before that, he was with the architects. And then before that, he was a WRAL news anchor. And I worked my way through political science in college. Started a family really early after going to UNCG Greensboro. And I've just kind of always been, as a person, torn between two sides of myself, either wanting to be in the arts, uh, to be a creator, and also dying to work in politics, civics, and government. And in a weird way, I've kind of carved out exactly where I want to be right now, which is talking about art, talking about culture, but doing it in a way that is geared towards fixing civics.
0: Can you talk a little bit about your unique Perspective on uh, politics and who you are politically. What is the Stephen Kent brand of politics?
2: Well, I I think the the way that I describe myself to most people is I am a conservative, but I am an aspiring libertarian So the reason in which I say that is because I think a lot of our political Instincts are things that are actually built into our personalities and this is a big part of Star Wars, right? Are you a person who finds it easy to let go of things? Or are you a find it a person who finds it really hard? Are you a person who would really like to have a, a micromanage, you know, control over everything? Do you do you stack your papers on your desk really nicely? Do you use a file cabinet to organize yourself, or are you chaos, right? Mm-hmm. Chaos and order is like everything that Star Wars is about, you know, and. In my bones, I did not choose to be an order person, but I am. Okay, okay. <laughs> I am an order person, and I feel more comfortable when things are done in an orderly way. However, order can get really ugly really fast. It can definitely turn people off to wanting to be around you. It can make you a control freak. I have noticed in my artistic pursuits, whether as an actor early on, as uh, a band member, a singer of a band... Boy, I'm hard to work with. I <laughs> I know I am. I'm, I've lost friends. I've, I've definitely made enemies in the arts world because my art, I want it to be done a certain way, even when I'm working with collaborators. And it can be very hard. Mm-hmm. Um, and that comes out in different ways in my work life as well. I believe it is correct to let go. And I believe it is correct to sometimes let the chips fall where they may. So I am instinctively quite conservative about certain things. But I think the better way to live is to embrace spontaneous order, to sometimes let the world just change, because it's inevitable. Mm -hmm. Um, Anakin Skywalker's mom says to him when he's leaving Tatooine for the first time, he says,
1: I don't want things to change. But you can't stop the change any more than you can stop the suns from setting.
2: And think about everything that's gone wrong in our politics. It's a reaction to the way the world has changed. Technology, automation, job changes, all sorts of things that have made people feel polarized and alienated from the way the world used to be. That's Mm -hmm. why we had Make America Great Again, because Mm -hmm. change has not been exciting for everybody. Um, But I believe in embracing change, even though it's not in my nature.
0: Do you have a difficult time finding a political home, if you will, with your oh, yes.
2: ideas on because very
0: conservative, <laughs> yeah. uh, in the traditional classic liberal yeah. way, yeah. that's hard, right? In this in, yeah. this, in this age, I've,
2: so in in kind of the spirit of embracing change, you know, I I really I went through a period of really bookish libertarianism, you know, so like, not uppercase L libertarianism, but you know, what if you know any libertarian friend, they're like, Oh, they are Republicans who smoke weed. And, <laughs> you know, I think I fit pretty nicely into that for a long time. And I really believed a lot of that. But there's also an incredible amount of dogma there about the role of government that the bad guy is always going to be the government and that every social program under the sun just cannot work. Mm-hmm. And here's the thing that is wrong with that. And, and here's the the thing that the the Trump years kind of made me rethink, was that whether you like it or not, people expect the government to do things. We are not living under anarchy. There is nobody who wants to live under anarchy and self-organization. People want predictability, and they want the government to work. They would like it to work Better, mm-hmm. and this sort of right wing and right wing libertarian commitment to trying to always take the teeth out of government—you uh, know—I just don't think that it is is what people really want, and I think Donald Trump tapped into that when he refused. To indulge the Paul Ryan instinct of slashing Social Security or privatizing Social Security. You know, I'm sorry, but there's nobody who wants it to be that way, even if it is a Ponzi scheme. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, and that's that's the thing that I I've just kind of rejiggered a little bit in my worldview is. I think that there's something to social democracy. I think there is something to government that does things very actively and robustly when it comes to the social fabric, social programs. I'm pretty darn open to universal basic income as the fruits that you bear by having capitalism. Mm -hmm. I think the direct checks that the government sent out uh, during during COVID-19 straight to people was proof of concept that you can do welfare better. It doesn't have to be where you go to a bureaucrat to see like, well, how long have you been unemployed? Well, (laughs) are you applying for jobs? Okay, well then we'll give you a little bit of money. What if our tax dollars just went full circle and came right back to us? I'm actually quite open to that idea. And it's not because I think it is perfect. I think it's because what people expect. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And you have to respond to that. If you were saying someone either
0: on the national level or the state level, the forces with this politician, who would you say, Stephen, the forces with right now?
2: With a politician, oof. I appreciate the demeanor of Senator Benjamin Sass okay. of Nebraska. I think he is a person who is trying his best to be an honest broker in Washington. Uh, it does not make him friends, and he sometimes has to, to flip-flop like any politician does. Sometimes they have to put their finger up to the wind and, and see which way it's blowing, and that's just part of, mm-hmm. of the job. But Benjamin Sass, I think, is someone whose heart is in the right place, and he is is trying really hard. Uh, I also really believe in current um, uh, ousted uh, Democratic mayor of Minneapolis. Her name's Betsy Hodges. She wrote right the second part of the forward to my book. She is a, a pretty far-left former mayor, and I don't know what her next act in politics is going to be, but she is a person who... Gets it. She understands that you cannot strip people, even your political opponents and voters who don't see the world the same way that you do, as your enemies. They are people who you have yet to convince of your point of view, and you just got to try harder. She's someone who gets that. I think Ben Sass is as well.
0: So, Stephen, where can readers find your book so that they can purchase it? We're going into the holiday season. By the way, this would make a great gift this political season, this holiday season for all those political junkies and Star Wars junkies.
2: Yeah. And right in time for the new Boba Fett show that's going to be on Disney plus new Star Wars live action show coming out in December. Uh, So you have to get your son, daughter, father, (laughs) wife, the the hardcover of how the force can fix the world. Uh, It is on sale anywhere that you get books. So you can go to your local bookshop and ask for it and they will bring it in or Barnes and Nobles, and it's, of course, available on Amazon. And people message me every day, and they ask, where should I get the book to put the most money in your pocket? And I will tell you almost nowhere does money go into my pocket so the answer is uh, get it where it is easiest to get it and I think for a lot of people that's going to be Amazon okay, okay. oh and I also did forgot there's also an audiobook, so I did okay. I did tape the audible edition myself so wow all right if you are not too put off by the sound of my voice I do narrate the entire book complete with music as well it's a, it's a really beautiful audiobook with a bonus podcast at the end with Republican pollster Kristen Soltis-Anderson okay. uh, who is one of the greatest pollster in the country right now, and we talk about political polarization and Star Wars. And where can listeners follow you on social media? Best place is Twitter at Stephen underscore Kent 89. That's Stephen with a PH underscore Kent 89.
0: And we were born in 89. Is that it?
2: <laughs> That's me. I'm a millennial.
0: <laughs> the year I graduated from high school. My goodness. Well, Stephen Kent, we appreciate you being on the podcast. We appreciate all you're doing to improve our politics through your book, How the Force Can Fix the World. You, sir, certainly know how to do politics better. Thank you for being on the podcast. Thank you, Ryan.
1: The Do Politics Better podcast is sponsored by the North Carolina Beer and Wine Wholesalers Association. Beer and wine distributors in North Carolina are family-owned companies that directly employ more than 5,600 men and women across the state. The North Carolina Beer and Wine Wholesalers Association works with the General Assembly to develop alcohol policies that ensure fairness in a competitive marketplace and promote responsible behavior. Visit the North Carolina Beer and Wine Wholesalers Association at ncbeerwine.com for more more information. I love that Star Wars has such a wide range of fans. And we know Representative Jason Sane always talks about his love of Star Wars. There are some other legislators that do too. But on Friday mornings, I volunteer and I read at a school every Friday and one of my students you get assigned a couple of students and you read with them throughout the entire year he really really wanted to read a Star Wars book well I have the books available we didn't have any Star Wars books and so it'd been a few weeks he kept saying is there a Star Wars book one time we just read one out of the library and this last week I brought him a Star Wars book and he Was so excited. I I could just tell it made his day. So from young to old, all ranges of people really can be united over Star Wars.
0: I agree. My children, now grown, we're all Star Wars fans. I said it in the interview with Steven. I, I grew up on Star Wars And as my kids grew older, they also became fans. And it got to the point when a new film would come out or a new TV show. It was something that we did together. And it means a lot. And it does provoke a lot of conversations about morals and religion and politics. I've never gotten quite as deep as Stephen has with his book. His book is really fascinating. And by the way, it would make a great gift for anyone out there who is a Star Wars fan or a politics fan, but especially a Star Wars fan who follows politics. Stephen has poured a lot into this book. We're very proud of him, and we just wish him the best. Go out and buy a copy of this book, send it to friends, send it to clients, and just enjoy. It's great Book to buy on Black Friday, which is probably when you're listening to this podcast. Tweet of the week. Tweet of the week. This week's Tweet of the Week is
1: from Don Vaughn at the NNO, at Don B. Vaughn on Twitter. Hear me out. A Hallmark holiday movie and the big work deadline is the state budget. In the capital city and all the small towns are starring in it. And it involves billions of dollars and happy Thanksgiving Everyone <laughs> in CGA and Seapool, so I tagged you in this because Brian Lewis is obsessed with Hallmark movies. Every year Christmas time comes around, he's watching them 24/ 7.:
0: Not 24 seven, but I do love Hallmark Christmas movies.
1: He tries to make every scene into a Hallmark movie with our interns before he's done it. He tells them they could be the stars of a Hallmark movie. He tells random people on the street, were the stars of Hallmark movies. <laughs> I mean, it just really spirals.
0: Yeah. You take this big city lobbyist from Raleigh. You know, she's working at the General Assembly, and she's this big-time city millennial. And then she goes out to the district, and she's visiting with legislators and clients, and she meets this small-town guy, and he's got a five-o'clock shadow. Of course, he's a widow, and (laughs) has got this precocious daughter- who, you know, they don't ever talk about mom anymore. They're just talking about Christmas. And maybe his name is Johnny Christmas. (laughs) You're like, I got to get back to the city because Raleigh is where it's at. I got to go get my cappuccino and all this stuff. But you know what? You're under the gazebo and a shooting star (laughs) goes over. And then all of a sudden Christmas lights come on and there's a parade and all is well. And you realize... Maybe this is the life for me. It's isn't that a Hallmark? Yes. Yeah, thing we could use sky in the title.
1: Oh, this was about me. Yes. This was, about <laughs> <laughs> was I supposed to know that the whole time?
0: Well, yeah, just one of the many plot lines that I. I know. I,
1: Every time I go back to my small hometown for Christmas, Brian thinks that there is a Hallmark movie to be made.
0: Yeah, I love Hallmark movies. I love the formula. I love the kitschiness of it. And I sometimes hate watch it. If you're going to watch a Hallmark movie with me, you got to put up with me talking throughout the whole movie. But it's fine.
1: Just if you live life with Brian, you have to put up with him talking throughout everything. Yeah.
0: So this morning, as Dawn had tweeted that out, and then you tagged me, thank you, by the way, I was doing some work at home, kind of got stuck there. Doing some paperwork, and <laughs> I was not to brag, but I was working. But I was watching on the Hallmark Channel a Christmas in Harlem, and it was really good, kind of good.
1: It was not good. Well, not they had
0: sure. to save the community center.
1: Oh, okay, of yeah. course they did in time
0: for Christmas.
1: Of course. Yeah,
0: you don't ever watch Hallmark Christmas movies.
1: I don't really watch TV that much.
0: Oh, listen to you, you read, right? <laughs> <laughs> I'm
1: really smart and you're really dumb. Yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> but I did have tree decorating at my house on Friday. Yeah, well. So
0: So all right, we're in Thanksgiving week, and that brings up a very good issue. You start decorating early. I don't believe in decorating until after Thanksgiving.
1: I just like the coziness of all of the Christmas decorations. Growing up, my mom just did our house up so big for Christmas, and it just feels so much like homey or cozy or I don't know the word to mm. use but I like the feel of your house decorated for whatever holiday.
0: My fear is that in my lifetime we are just going to forget Thanksgiving so it's my little part in just carving out Thanksgiving and making sure that I recognize it. Our family recognizes it. I just don't want it to blend in because I really do like Thanksgiving. It is an inclusive holiday. It's one of those holidays that transcends, I believe, politics and religion, rural, urban. Most folks have some sort of gathering where they think about what they're thankful for. And they are usually thankful, usually not always, but usually thankful for those that are sitting around the table with them.
1: Brian and I eat lunch together every day and we share something that we're thankful for at lunch before we eat every day. I just think it's good practice. I also do like the grateful journal. Mm-hmm. Um in the mornings. You remember when I got you one of those and then I found it in the shred. <laughs> I found it in this shred file. <laughs> I'm
0: not one to journal. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Nothing uh,
1: says I enjoyed your character. <laughs> like I would like to see this turned into a million different pieces.
0: <laughs> yeah, I'm not one to journal my gratitude, but I do try to find gratitude every single day.
1: I could tell you're grateful for me.
0: Yeah. I am very grateful. For you, I'm very grateful for the work of Christy Jones, who is also here at New Frame. I am grateful for a budget this year. Mm -hmm. All the legislators that put in the hard work to make that happen, I'm grateful for Governor Cooper for signing the budget. I'm grateful for my family, my kids, their health, they're doing well. I just have a lot of gratitude this year. What about your dogs? I am very thankful for my dogs. (laughs) I love my dogs, all three of them. What are you doing for Thanksgiving? Thanksgiving.
1: I am going to the mountains and to South Carolina, actually. I am having Thanksgiving with Britt Bryson's family and then with Corey Bryson's family. So I am grateful for them for just taking me everywhere they go. Wow. That sounds fun. Next week we will be back with a legislator. We'll return to our normal programming and we hope that you have a great Thanksgiving. Enjoy your family enjoy returning to your hometown maybe the night before thanksgiving having a few drinks and some fun with your high school friends whatever thanksgiving looks like for you we hope that you enjoy it and you remember to do politics better Uh, when you leaned your head back i could see your boogers really do i have boogers yeah do you need to blow your nose no
0: i think i'm good
1: well nobody can see it except me